Okay, time to invite the kids to come on up front and have a seat. Even if you're visiting today, you can come on up and have a seat right here. Feel free to bring somebody up along with you if you'd like. All right, come on up. Good to see everyone this morning. All right. You can have a seat. Find somewhere to sit. Good. Good to see everyone this morning. Now, I want you to do something for me. I want you to raise your hand if you come to church. Yeah, all of you should have your hand up for that one. Okay, hands down. Raise your hand if you read the Bible or have somebody read it to you. Okay, hands down. Raise your hand if you sometimes spend time praying and talking to God in prayer. Lots of hands. That's all good stuff. Raise your hand if you do some good things. Who does good stuff? Good things. Yeah, good. Okay. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute. Did you know that you can do all of those things and never really believe in Jesus? We can do lots of good things and never really believe in Jesus, never really trust in him. Now, how sad would that be if we were to live our lives, good lives, even maybe trying to live for God, but never really know Jesus and never really believe in him, wouldn't that be sad? That'd be very sad, wouldn't it? So we start our spiritual lives by believing in Jesus, right? By trusting in who he is and what he has done. Okay, we believe that Jesus was God who became man, lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for our sins and rose again, right? We believe those things. This is the gospel for us. This is the good news for us. And so when we believe in Jesus in that way, we have salvation. We have forgiveness of sin. We have eternal life, right? So one way we believe in Jesus is for salvation, for us to be saved and to be in relationship with him. But think with me for a minute. Wouldn't it be kind of strange if we trusted in Jesus, if we believed in him for eternal salvation, but we didn't trust him for the other things in our lives? Wouldn't that be kind of silly, huh? Yeah, isn't that kind of silly that we would trust him for all of eternity, but not trust him and believe in him for the things of this earth? Would it make sense for us to trust him forever for our eternity, but not trust him when we're hurt? Or to not believe in him when someone we love is sick or when somebody's being mean to us or when there's other difficult things in life, right? We can trust God. If we can trust Jesus, if we can believe in him for eternity, for our eternal salvation, for our eternal life, that we can also believe in him for all of the things that happen in life, all of the circumstances that happen here. But you know what it takes? We have to keep and continue believing in Jesus. Because it's one thing to believe in Jesus and trust him for eternity, for our eternal life, but we also need to keep believing in Jesus every day for all the little stuff and all the things that we face here in this life. We have to keep focused on Jesus, on who he is. Jesus is God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, right? He's our Savior. He's Lord. He's in charge of everything, Right? He's the one who can take the hard things in life and turn them for good. He's the one who will never leave us. Right? And so we can continue to believe in Jesus for everything that happens. So, a couple questions for you. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you trust in him for eternal salvation? And then, 
Will you keep believing in Jesus every day for all the circumstances and all the things of life that we face? I hope we can be a people who keep believing and trusting in Jesus for who he is and the good that he will do in our lives. Think we can do that? Yeah, we can believe and trust in Jesus, right? Great. Thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. One thing I would encourage you is, as that is taking place, be praying for the children and the parents. I think it's a great opportunity, reminder to keep praying for our children that they would love Christ with everything that they are. So we are in Mark 9 this morning, verses uh, 14 to 29. Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. If you're here and new to the Bible, uh, in the beginning of each Bible, especially in the seats in front of you, there's a table of contents. Uh, the Bible is divided up into two sections, maybe the Old and New Testament. Mark is in the New and they're divided into chapters and verses, and we're in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. So we've been working our way through this gospel, and last week in Mark 9, 1 to 13, we saw Jesus up on a mountain, unveiled uh, as the holy, glorious God that He is, and this week is strikingly opposite, different. Jesus is no longer shining bright white like the sun. Instead, we find Jesus down off the mountain in the muck with conspiring scribes and destructive demons and a faltering father whose son is demon sick. And the disciples can't do anything about it. It was such a change from last week. But that change is very purposeful in Mark's gospel. That change shows Jesus from up on a mountain coming down with us. It's a bit of an incarnation take two, if you will. It's again proving that Jesus came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Jesus up on high, now coming down near, and coming right down near into the midst of our junk. And so we see this truth that Jesus is transcendently God, and Jesus is so very near. And that's what Mark wants to do for you. And then he wants to call you to believe in him. Right? It might be a struggle to believe in a God who is transcendent and great and way out there. And it might be hard to believe in a God who's very near and kind and nice like a cuddly bear. But if God is both, if Jesus is both, can't you believe? Won't you, as Jeff alluded to in the children's sermon, believe him not just for eternity into the future that you don't know, but right here, right now, in everything. Couldn't you believe him as a father whose son is sick, suffering with a demon? Couldn't you believe him in your marriage? Couldn't you believe him in so on and so forth? And so <clears throat> the issue in today's passage is what does it mean to believe in Jesus? In fact, if you would, just flip back to the very beginning of Mark. This is one of the overarching themes of this gospel. We, we see Mark telling us right in the beginning in verse 15 that Jesus, when he came, he became proclaiming the gospel of God. In verse 14 and verse 15, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is, when Jesus came, all that the prophets in the Old Testament were saying about, the time is now. All of those promises are happening now. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am here. The king is here. So my kingdom is right here. And our one response is repent and believe the gospel. And so one of the main things of Mark's gospel is what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And this passage is going to unpack that. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to trust 
in Jesus. And so that's what this passage is going to get at, but it's going to get at with a God right here with us. So let's read these verses. Mark 9, uh, 15 to 29. And when they came to disciples, that is when Jesus and Peter and James and John, who were up on the mountain, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, that is, I think, the scribes, what are you arguing about with them? That is, the disciples. So he's asking the scribes what they're arguing with the disciples about. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he, that is Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirits, or when the spirits saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell to, on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Don't miss that. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we come to you in your name, knowing that apart from you we can do nothing. And so in prayer, with much pleading with you, we ask that you would come here and work in us that which only you can do, that you would show us your glory, that we might be changed by it. So give us hearts and ears now to receive your word with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the problems we have with this passage is often sometimes used as a manual, a how-to on how to remove demons. Uh, I, I don't think that's what it's there for. It's there to show us Jesus. We have to remember when we're reading these Gospels who we are in the story. We're not here given to be Jesus. We're not Jesus in this story casting out. We're maybe the crowd looking for a show. Maybe we're the scribes arguing with Jesus' disciples about which way is the right way. Or maybe we're the helpless father, giving up hope, doubting that even Jesus can do something. Maybe we're like the demon-possessed sick boy who can't stop sinning, can't heal ourselves, and we need Jesus' help. We're, we're anybody but Jesus in this story. And we need Jesus is the point of the story. We are desperately in need of Jesus. And so this story is about Jesus, not about how you 
need to figure out how to cast out demons. It's not the point at all. The point is Christ. Now, when Jesus comes off of the mountain, he comes right down into a mess, to an argument. He comes down to the disciples, and they see a crowd gathered now, and, and, and scribes arguing. Now, Jesus, throughout the entirety of Mark, has consistently been surrounded by crowds gathering for the show, but often in the way of ministry. Jesus has often encountered scribes and religious leaders who are arguing with him, opposing him, and will even begin to see conspiring to murder him. And Jesus is often confronting or being confronted by demons. And if you have all been tracking with Mark's gospel, anytime Jesus deals with all any or all three of those, he's able to handle them no problem. He can cast out demons by simply saying a word. He feeds hungry crowds. And he always can shut up arguing scribes. But the disciples, without Jesus, can't handle it at all. They can't cast out the demon. They don't know what to do with the crowd. And they are in an argument with the scribes. And so when Jesus comes, he comes down and he takes control. He starts with a question with, for the scribes. What are you arguing about? Uh, And instead of the scribes answering, the father in the crowd interjects. But before that, we see the crowd immediately running up to Jesus. The crowds, I don't think, are beholding Jesus still shining like the sun or anything like that. I think they finally see Jesus coming and they know Jesus can deal with what the disciples haven't been able to deal with. And so they're coming up to him who can deal with it. Uh, It's almost like, I don't know if you've had this experience where you call customer service and the person who's supposed to serve you isn't helpful at all. And so they transfer you to somebody who is less helpful than them and they transfer you to somebody who must have trained those previous two because they're, as an, and it goes on until you finally get come to a customer service who knows what they're doing and actually helps you. Jesus is like that last one here. He's the one who can actually help. The disciples can't help. The crowds can't help. The scribes are no help. But Jesus helps. And, and that's one of the immediate points for us right away. The disciples are nothing without Jesus. They can't do anything apart from him. That's us. Right? And when Jesus comes, help comes. He, he is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And so don't, don't miss that simple application right away. And so Jesus comes and help comes. Jesus comes right into the mess. Again, I, I believe this is one of the main points of this text because you can take last week's text, Jesus up on the mountain, shining like the sun, this big, huge, transcendent, glorious God, and leave here going, big deal. What does that mean for me in my workplace where it's hard to be a Christian? What does that mean for me and when I'm in front of the computer screen tempted? What does that mean for me when I'm just flitting away every night, wasting my life? What does that mean? And Jesus comes right down near into our lives, into our mess, and laments faith. That's what happens here. So Jesus asks this question instead of the scribes, answering this man from the crowd, the father of this demon-haunted son, answers, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit, and he makes him mute. Whenever it sees him, he throws him down, foams, grinds, becomes rigid. Imagine that father. 
any of you had children and they're sick and you can't do anything about it, you can somehow relate here. And this has been going on for the entirety of the child's life. I don't know how old he is. He's older than a toddler. He's a, he's a, he's a young son, who knows, 8, 10, 12. It's been happening for all of those years, getting worse. This demon's trying to destroy him. And the man comes to what he thinks will actually finally behold the disciples and they can't help him. In fact, the man's coming touches off an argument. So the man is relegated to the margin. He's supposed to be the focus and he's not getting any help at all. He's observing this argument. The man takes the opportunity to this question, this pause to get Jesus' attention, to get Jesus' help. And his last words are, so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And Jesus' response is very like the prophet's response in the Old Testament to God's people's ongoing faithlessness and idolatry and spiritual whoring to God. Oh, faithless generation. This is a lament. This is a a, a right mixture of holy sadness and righteous anger. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I going to bear with you? How long am I going to be with you? Bring him to me. And so Jesus laments. First, let's just ask, who is this directed at? When Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, the temptation is, because the man's last words of Jesus were that the disciples aren't able to cast them out, that Jesus is indicting his disciples. I don't think so. I don't think this is directed at the disciples for their inability to cast out a demon. In fact, Mark will use this language of generation, wicked generation, four times in the gospel, and it's never directed at the disciples. It's always directed at uh, faithless Israel. Just like in the Old Testament, when God's prophets were sent as lawyers bringing God's lawsuit for their covenant faithfulness to God's people, they'll often decry their faithlessness. And they'd been doing that for hundreds of years before Jesus got on the scene, and Jesus is seeing the same thing. Israel, God's people, is absolutely without faith in regards to God and God's promises. And so Jesus is lamenting this faithless generation. Jesus is lamenting this generation without faith. And so he's, he's lamenting not the disciples' inability to cast out a demon. I don't think that's the point at all. At the end of this passage, Jesus, when they ask him, why couldn't we cast it out? He doesn't indict him. He doesn't condemn him. He just answers them very simply. You just need to pray. He isn't here talking to the disciples at all, I don't think. He's, he's talking to the scribes. He's talking to the crowd. He, the situation is the problem. And faithlessness is the root of the problem. The, the problem is that they will not believe. We know throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that God has been promising His people redemption in a Savior, redemption in a Messiah, redemption in the Son of God, made man coming to suffer and die and save. And Jesus comes in after John the Baptist, after John the Baptist has basically baptized all of Israel, and you would think that Jesus would find faith. And he doesn't. He finds demons. 
You think that after all of this time and all of this ministry, Jesus would find people eager and willing to believe in God's Messiah, and he doesn't. He finds scribes charging that God's Messiah has a demon. He's condemning God's people. He's lamenting, just like the prophets. And so Jesus is lamenting Israel, and Jesus is lamenting faithlessness. Now, faith or trust or belief always has an object. You put your faith in something or someone. And so Jesus isn't just lamenting faithlessness. Jesus is lamenting unbelief in him. They should have received him. They should have submitted to him. They should have repented and believed in him. But they refuse. It's not about doing bad things or making bad choices. It's a refusal to embrace that Jesus is the God sent to save, made man. In him they can find forgiveness of sin. In them they can have, find the freedom they've wanted, but they reject him. They're not an unspiritual people. It's not that they lack religiosity. It's that they continue to refuse Jesus. That's what he's lamenting. Let's not forget that Jesus is God. What, what grieves God? What angers God? Unbelief in Jesus grieves and angers God. And so, in effect, their unbelief towards Jesus is saying they don't believe him worthy of their belief. They don't find in Jesus someone worthy of placing all of their trust and hope in. They don't think he's God. They don't think he's good. They don't see in him anything worthy of any kind of response of faith in him. And this is the essence of faithlessness. This is the essence of unbelief. A refusal to see in Jesus who he actually is. And so that's applicable to you, maybe. Are you here disbelieving that Jesus is God made man sent to save? Are you here as what the Bible would say, an unbeliever in regards to Jesus? What do you do with that? Well, in Mark's the beginning of the gospel, you repent and believe. That's all you do. You you look at it for what it is and you say, I repent. I've I, I was wrong all of these years of rejecting Jesus, and I I believe in him. He is who the Bible says he is. And and there is no other way to do that. You you can try other ways, as Pastor Jeff said. You can try doing good things. You can try being a good person. You can try coming to church more often. You can try helping more people. You can try cleaning up your language and cleaning up your life. And at the end of the day, all of that's going to be for nothing because there's only one thing you can do which is look at Jesus and say, I need you. Now, for those of you who do believe in Jesus, we can still function with unbelief towards Jesus. Just think of anything in your past two weeks that were difficult, and how did you react? Did you say, the Lord is given, the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord, or did you say, God, I'd just like to curse you and die? Were you a grumbler, or were you a grateful person for whatever he gave you? Were you you glad for the trial, or did you whine about it? Because the whining and the grumbling and the complaining is just unbelief in who Jesus is. 
And the grateful endurance and going towards the obstacle in faith is believing. Now, a quick aside here. The situation that we see here, arguing scribes, a crowd just gathered for the fun, disciples unable to do what they should be able to do, demons still haunting Israel, is just the fruit of what their generations of unbelief has reaped. That is, the context they're living in is their responsibility for the unbelief. Israel is reaping what it has sown. Jesus wants to remake Israel and all who have faith in him into a a garden full of good fruit and vegetables growing strong and happy and, and fruitful. But because they won't believe, their garden is now filled with weeds and demons and arguing and enmity. Their unbelief is reaping what we see here. They're they're sleeping in the bed they have made. Because culture is inherently religious. There is no such thing as a secular culture. Secularism is a religion. And it reaps something. There's fruit borne by it. And it's life-taking. It's seeing a boy unable to be helped because demons are there instead. It's all kinds of arguments and divisions. Their unbelief in Jesus is just reaping what it's sowing. Now, of course, that's so applicable to us. Many of you, as I've talked to you, are lamenting this circus of an election. But the issue isn't who's the next leader going to be. The issue is that we are reaping what we're sowing. We're bearing the fruit of our unbelief towards the gospel. We will get what we deserve as a people. And it always starts with the church. The culture will follow the church because the culture is inherently religious. And so it always begins with us. We can never be a church always pointing a finger out there and saying, oh, this world is a mess. Oh, this culture. Oh, blah, blah, blah. It always has to start with us. Because where do we need to repent and believe the gospel? Where are we not living out our belief in Christ? We need to cry out like this father, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Now, that all being said, we ought of all people as Christians to be crazily optimistic. Why? Because we know this Jesus. Because he is actually a God-made man who did actually die and did actually rise because in Jesus the kingdom of God has come because we read in the beginning of Mark's gospel that Jesus came to the strong man's house and bound him up and is plundering his house Jesus wins and so we ought to have all kinds of optimism and then we ought to be convinced to invest everything we have in Jesus now after Jesus laments they bring the boy to Jesus And Jesus sees right before his eyes what the father described before. The boy falls into convulsions. He falls on the ground. He's rolling about. He's foaming at the mouth. And he asks the father, how long has this been happening? And the father explains, from childhood, this demon's trying to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion us and help us. And Jesus just camps on that phrase, if you can do anything. If you can do anything. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are the possible for one who believes it. We could say that differently. 
Jesus could be saying, if, if I can, all things are possible when one who believes in me. Remember, belief is always in regards to him. This man is doubting Jesus. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, all, the, all things are possible to one who believes, and believes in who? Believes in what? All things are possible to one who believes in Jesus. So Jesus calls his father to believe in him. This man does not believe that Jesus can. This man does not believe that Jesus is sufficient. This man is like a beggar, just trying to coax out of Jesus anything. And right before him is the man who can do everything. As this man sees in Jesus not a strong, well-built bridge that can get him across the chasm of his son's suffering, this man sees like a frayed bridge with cables sagging and foundations rotting and planks worn out. He doesn't think Jesus can get him to what he needs. And yet right before him is the glorious, all-powerful, eternal, sufficient Son of God. And if Jesus is who he says he is, the if you can is simply staggeringly foolish. And yet all of us can relate. If you've been alive at any, for any length of time on this earth, you've encountered a situation where you look at Jesus and go, if you can. Maybe you're there right now. You know all of the theology about Jesus. You you can accurately describe the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. You can get that all right, but when it comes to your situation, you look at him and you look at your situation, you look at him and say, "Just, I don't think you can, but if you could, I've heard maybe, somebody said once, read it in the Bible, but I doubt So, if you can, all things are possible. Remember, Jesus is calling this man to believe in him. That's it. That is, that is just the simplicity of this. He's not asking the man to figure out a plan for his son's healing. He's not asking the man to do anything but this one thing. Just, just trust me. Just put all of your weight into me. Just, just lean everything that you have and all of your hopes and all of your fears Put it right here in me. I am sufficient to bear the weight. I, I can take the weight of the situation. I can bear it. Just look on me. Lean on me. Trust in me. I got this. I, I am sufficient. You aren't. My disciples aren't. The scribes definitely aren't. This crowd is no use. But of everybody who's ever been on earth, I can do this. In fact, we've seen throughout Mark's gospel that this is nothing. This is, this is the man who spoke one little word to a dead girl and raised her. This is the man who spoke simple little words to a raging body of water and it quieted. This is the man who was confronted with thousands of hungry people and fed them with a few loaves of fish. This is the man who we know at the end of the book dies and rises from the dead in of himself. And when Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible, the simple truth is he can do anything. In fact, that language is picked up by Mark in the very next chapter and applied to the rich young ruler. You remember who I said that was? The rich young ruler is likely Mark. I'm not going to bank my salvation on it, but I, I think it's Mark. 
And you'll remember that instead of Mark following Jesus, he leaves sad because he loves his money more than he loves Jesus. And Jesus says something that utterly astounds the disciples. After Jesus says it's easier for a big, huge camel to squeak through the eye of a little needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples respond and say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response is, salvation is absolutely impossible for a man. But for me, it's totally possible. All things are possible with me. This is in regards to salvation here. What you and I can never do, what we don't have the power to do, we don't have the will to do, we don't have the want to do, it is absolutely possible for Jesus. Do you know how hard the salvation of a sinner is? Do you know how difficult it is? Do you know what it takes to save a rebellious sinner who has committed eternal treason against an eternal holy God? Do you know how hard that is? It's so hard that God himself has to come as a man and take the sin of his people upon himself and suffer the curse of God's wrath upon himself and die. And that's not enough. That man who dies has to be raised from the dead. And that's not enough. Sinners have to have God himself come in and internally remake their spiritual death insides and make them alive and that's not enough then that sinner has to look at jesus and actually believe in him with all of his being and only jesus who is god can do that and as pastor jeff said so well in the sermon, if he can do that what else can he do and that's what jesus is telling this man is there anything that he can do? That is, if he can save a sinner from God's wrath, from hell, from Satan, from himself or herself, is there any trial or circumstance that he cannot bend to serve his saving work in our lives? Can anything pluck him from his sovereign and saving hand? Is there anything in your life that is a loss when Jesus is your Lord? Is there anything worth complaining about? Is there anything worth distrusting Jesus over? He can actually save you from an eternity's worth of wrath. What else can he do? What else won't he do? So the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. The man says, I believe you. I believe in you. I was wrong. You're right. I trust you. That, that's the simple foundational essence of what being a Christian is. You are not a Christian if you do not believe in Jesus. I, I don't care how long you've gone to church. The Bible knows nothing of somebody who says, marks a box when you vote saying that you're a Christian, but doesn't believe in Jesus. And I only say that because I love you, the one thing you need to do that I urge you to do is turn to Christ by faith. I believe in him. And yet this man says, I believe, help my unbelief. That might sound utterly strange, but I bet that sounds utterly familiar. Our belief in Jesus is often a doubting belief. 
a struggling belief. But I think the essence of belief is that last phrase, help my unbelief. Who's he asking for help from? Jesus. Just follow this if you can. Help my unbelief in who? Jesus. Jesus, help me in my unbelief towards you to believe in you. Isn't it the essence of faith to turn to Jesus for everything? Even your doubt? Even your fear? Even your lack of trust in him? This man is doing the one thing that faith does, turning to Jesus for everything. That's, that's belief there. That's what that man is evidencing there. It's, it's faith. Jesus, I don't believe in you. Help me to believe in you. He's turning to Jesus for everything. That's what being a Christian is. I have no hope in anything else. I've tried it. I've tried scribes. I've tried disciples. I've tried drugs. I've tried everything. And the only thing that ever does anything is Jesus. Jesus, help me even in the thing that I should be ashamed of, disbelieving in you. That's faith, brothers and sisters, right there. And you and I are commended to be just like that guy. In fact, you're lying to yourself if you're not already this guy. That's why this passage isn't a, a casting demons out 101. This passage is about how to be a believer in Jesus such that you even ask Jesus for the very thing that you need most, which is belief in him. Another way to say this is there's nothing more that you need to pray than that. There's nothing more you need. You don't need healing. You don't need your kid to get better. You don't need your marriage to get better. You need to believe in Jesus. And you need to ask Jesus, help me to believe. Because that's the only way we respond rightly to a way that glorifies God that actually helps the situation. Isn't this good? Isn't God's word good? Isn't this delightful? Isn't Jesus incredible? We don't have a God who looks at you and rolls your eyes when you don't get it. You have a God who says, even ask me for the faith to believe in me because it's a gift and I'll give it. I love to give it. Isn't this good? Who else is like this? Oh, he's so good. So Jesus heals the boy, but he does it in this remarkable way. He actually kills him first and then he raises him from the dead. So he commands the spirit to come out the boy is left like a corpse this this kid is dead you know maybe his heart is still beating a little bit but they bury people like this kid and then jesus does what he always does just very simple he just picks the boy up and mark adds this little phrase and he arose this is easter This guy got to see a little Easter. Jesus is saying, this little dead kid, I just raised him up. Just wait a few weeks. You'll see me walk out of a grave. And then he's telling to all of us, the only way to truly live is you first got to die. And I'll raise you up. It's just packing so much in this little phrase. And he arose. And we're saying that, we're looking at saying, that's got to be me i got to die if I'm ever going to live and follow Jesus. i got to die to this world, die to my own desires, die to everything but Jesus, and he raises me up. And then you do that because you know that only Jesus has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel. Do you believe it? You, 
I'm a pastor, and so I care about you most of the time. You are the biggest fool in the world to reject this. There's nothing else other than you ought to be wearing a dunce cap, and I did it for 21 years of my life. Why wouldn't you believe this? This guy raises dead people. And this guy calls you to follow him by dying and rising. After Jesus does this little Easter thing for this guy, he's alone with the disciples, and they ask him, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And I think the application, of course, is believing in Jesus is always evidenced by praying to Jesus. And we walk away from it with that. If you believe in Jesus, you'll be a praying kind of person. You'll pray all the time for everything. What what does faith look like in life? What What evidences belief? What shows belief? And we as Christians know we pray always for everything. That's it. So let's pray. Well, Father, we, uh, what do we do with this news but be in awe of it? Thank you for it. Delight in your son over it. Believe him. And God, I ask on behalf of myself and your people, help us in our unbelief. We believe your son. He is so precious and worthy. We are so quick to disbelieve in him in the muck and mess of our lives. So help us in our unbelief. We turn to you for everything. So God, I pray from this, your people would love your son more. They'd believe him in the stuff of life and rejoice in you for all things. They would be consistent and constant in prayer and thanksgiving because you are a God who does all things and does them well. In Jesus' name, amen.